And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great nation and a great day. A great day when maybe we can uh, turn our attention away from some of the shootings that have been uh, shocking the country and upsetting the country as always happens mass shootings where people are killed for no particular reason uh, to uh, spending money for no particular reason because we have a government that is to put it mildly very very broke deeply in debt a 34 trillion dollar debt and right now, if you actually pay some attention to what is going on, there is a proposal that has been put forward by the state of California and by the city of San Francisco. And if that proposal, which is for reparations based upon slavery and Jim Crow and uh, centuries of racism, if that proposal for reparations went through, we could more than double just think about it. Double our total national debt, spending at least another $34 trillion. What are we talking about? We're talking about a, uh, um, a program of uh, reparations. And uh, to, to make sure that you know that it's for real, it's not made up, it's not some paranoid fantasy. It actually is something that the state of California and the city of San Francisco has been very serious about. There are two different reports. And in the New York Post, in a piece by Stephen Hayward that they include there, Stephen Hayward is a scholar at the University of California at Berkeley, where he's a lecturer both at the law school and at the Institute of Governmental Studies. But um, Hayward, Hayward's piece in the New York Post is illustrated with photographs of the report, the interim report that came out under the heading California Task Force to Study and Develop Reparations Proposals for African Americans. And uh, it's just astonishing. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. And uh, the, the numbers are just staggering. In the state of California, which is the more modest sum, in San Francisco, of course, they're spending even more or proposing to spend even more. California state government set up a task force to study reparations, and its first report called for a long menu of remedial measures to help blacks. While the group was notably silent on a dollar amount, advocates in public hearings demanded direct payments to all California blacks, ranging from $350,000 to $800,000 per person. That would cost the state about $1.8 trillion. And uh, then Stephen Hayward comments, not to be outdone, San Francisco's own African-American Reparations Advisory Committee was less bashful about an explicit cash demand issuing a report calling for one-time lump-sum payment of $5 million for each black person. San Francisco has about 45,000 blacks, making the cost of the city $223 billion. The uh, city budget is 
14 billion every year. So every non-black person in San Francisco would be on the hook for $263,000 each, that's men, women, and children, to pay for the transfer. And Hayward asked, how fast would San Francisco empty out if this proposal were actually implemented? And extrapolate the amount uh, to the nation as a whole, and the cost would easily rival the national debt, which is currently $31 trillion. But... Uh, one notable feature, and this is just extraordinary, one notable feature of all these proposals is that the qualification that a reparations recipient must be proved to be a descendant of slaves has been dropped. Now skin color alone qualifies for payment meaning that Barack Obama would be eligible if he lived in San Francisco. Now, you might say, wait, 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 Barack Obama is mixed race. Yes, but he identifies as black and his skin color is black. Then they would also say Barack Obama's ancestors were never enslaved. Well, that's true, but they're dropping that as a requirement now. Uh, perhaps this is necessary for California, which never even had slavery, writes Hayward. There is a deafening silence from Democratic politicians over these reparations proposals, especially from Governor Gavin Newsom, and for good reason. The reparations program would be unaffordable, unfair, and inflame rather than calm race relations. Would second-generation immigrants from Africa qualify? Would second-generation immigrants from anywhere else have to pay? If uh, Stephen Curry, the basketball star with the Golden State Warriors, who makes $48 million and has property within San Francisco, does he qualify? Well, why not? Racial reparations already exist in the form of affirmative action, minority, small business loans, and other programs. Do they not mitigate payment? The uh, questions are, are endless. The, the basic problem with all of this, and this is the uh, point that uh, Hayward makes. We've posted his piece uh, from the New York Post up, up at our website at michaelmedved.com that uh, today's woke creed, he writes, has replaced class conflict with race conflict and pitting racial groups against each other for state-delivered spoils is a certain recipe for rising civil animosity that might not stay civil. Some witnesses before the State of California Task Force on Reparations openly in their testimony threatened riots if cash payments are not made. Uh, this is unreal. We've heard uh, the leaked audios of Hispanic Democrats in Los Angeles disparaging black Democrats. Expect more of this, says Hayward as Democrats continue their deadly embrace of the politics of race conflict. It'll be an interesting spectacle to watch a Newsom attempt to run for president someday on a platform of reparations. But see, this is not only a problem for 
Newsom, and it's one of the reasons that uh, despite all of his problems, and, and there are gigantic problems, there are people in the Democratic Party who are desperately eager to hang on to Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden uh, does not, no one expects him to take a position on reparations right now. For almost anyone else who would be a new candidate, uh, especially with these reports coming out and uh, advocating the the San Francisco City report uh, once uh, part of the benefits that they would give to even out the income of black people with uh, white people and Asian people and, and Latino people who have higher average incomes than black people. In order to average that out, there would be income supplements that would be granted based on race alone that would last up to 250 years. No, seriously, for 250 years, you get extra money from the government according to that proposal. This is, this is cuckoo. And it's extremely dangerous cuckoo. It's dangerous not only for the Democratic Party, but dangerous for the country. Uh, we will be right back with more dangers to the country. A uh, confession of sorts by the one and only George Santos and also a Twitter war. We'll get to that and more coming up on the MedBed Show. 800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. show uh, the latest on uh, George uh, Santos the um, uh, the 2022 candidate who actually won his election for Congress he is a member of Congress he has been sworn in and one of the uh, dramatic uh, incidents for him has to do with uh, about a week ago uh, somebody had unearthed photographs of uh, George Santos in drag and initially his defenders such as they are were saying oh no that had been photoshopped uh, and uh, George Santos had denied that he had ever been active in the drag circuit uh, dressing as a woman well now there is a different story and he admits to performing uh, in <laughs> in drag and uh, this is the way he described uh, uh, his uh, turnaround and his uh, admission in, I guess you could be now just not part of the gay community, but part of the LGBTQ community. Uh, this is George Santos, the congressman from New York. Listen. Congressman, were you, ever, were you ever a drag queen, queen in Brazil? <laughs> no, I was not a drag queen in Brazil, guys. I was young and I had fun at a festival. Sue me for having a life. Okay, sue me for having a life. <laughs> there, is, there is this also, um, and uh, this counts as our tweets of the day. Turn the page now to the internet. <laughs> 
I mean, wow, what a great, smart tweet. Change his password so he no longer has access to his Twitter feed. Did you send the tweet? I did not send that tweet. My system was hacked. I was pranked. Donald Trump hasn't tweeted at us once, and I'm starting to get worried about him. So we have a new tweet. All right. Can I do the honors? Stand by. Tweet alert. Okay, the first of the tweets of the day came from um, Manu Raju of CNN, who was quoting Senator John Kennedy, the Republican senator, often very salty and very funny, from Louisiana. And he said of uh, Representative George Santos, he's nutty as a fruitcake. Uh, and he said, that's why I call him a bunny boiler. I don't know if you've seen Fatal Attraction, but there are people like that out there. Uh, the, uh, the, the way that she, uh, the Glenn Close character in Fatal Attraction, uh, intimidates the Michael Douglas uh, character in Fatal Attraction is she takes the pet bunny that belongs to Michael Douglas's children and boils it on the stove in their house. It's, it's an unpleasant reference. And then uh, Representative Santos, distinguished gentleman from New York, uh, responded to uh, Senator John Kennedy, the Republican from Louisiana, his fellow Republican. He said, I am saddened that a distinguished senator from the GOP, whom I have respected, would use such derogatory language against me. Language like that is hurtful and divisive and has no place in Congress. Okay, there's, there's also this about uh, no place in Congress. Uh, he is, um, Santos, already has a challenger for re-election. Uh, Joshua LaFazan, who's a Democrat, who had finished third in the Democratic primary to run against Santos, uh, has already filed a challenge planning to run in 2024. Uh, Santos has reportedly promised to local Republicans that he will not run for re-election, which I guess is a relief to everybody, but I, given the reliability of uh, George Santos and his promises and his testimonies, uh, don't know. You're not quite sure you can take that one to the bank. There is also a uh, disturbing report from another one of his fellow members in uh, Congress, and this from CNN. GOP conference chair Elise Stefanik has come under scrutiny for her support for Santos last year. Stefanik was a key validator for Santos in their shared home state and often touted the candidate in public and private forums. Uh, several prominent GOP donors told CNN that they gave to Santos, donated money to his campaign, in other words, who was largely unknown to them, only because Stefanik, the state's most influential elected Republican and a prolific fundraiser, backed him. So this is, uh, <laughs> this is not uh, the way to go. Uh, they... Um, uh, there is uh, this that came in as an email uh, from Scott, and it has to do with some of the internal GOP controversy. Uh, Scott asks, um, do, you want, do you think, me, 
that prosecuting and imprisoning January 6th rioters is a path forward for American unity or a step back. You know well Thomas Jefferson's disposition, uh, and, and then he quotes Thomas Jefferson, they were founded in ignorance, not wickedness. God forbid we should ever be 20 years without such a rebellion. Set them right as to facts, pardon, and pacify them. I don't know uh, for sure what uh, rebellion, it may have been Shays' Rebellion in Massachusetts, which was a tax rebellion where people actually died. And uh, it's one of those things that provoked a constitutional convention because the government under the old Articles of Confederation was too weak to deal with Shays' Rebellion. Uh, do I think that prosecuting and imprisoning people who uh, is a path forward for American unity or a step back? I think it's a path forward. I, I do. Because if you actually look at some of the footage, at, at people attacking the seat of government, and they were not attacking uh, Democrats, they were not attacking people on the left, they were not attacking Joe Biden, they were attacking the capital of the United States. And they were attacking the Congress of the United States, and they were attacking our Constitution. And again, none of these rioters have been uh, imprisoned for uh, life. I don't think the the sentences, uh, the typical sentences have been a couple of months, and, and then some I think have gotten as many as four years. Uh, we will talk a little bit about the most recent uh, January 6th convictions, including the convictions from uh, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, uh, that all coming up. And uh, the, the idea that some of the property destruction, if nothing else, uh, plus threatening the lives of people and injuring police officers, and that gets to the very essence. If, if you're going to have law and order, you can't say that just because you were ignorant and misled that uh, assaulting and causing serious injury and hospitalization uh, to police officers, that that should go unpunished. That seems to me not appropriate. We will be right back with the latest on convictions and trials. Medved show, uh, there is uh, continuing uh, prosecution. I don't think it's persecution. I think it is prosecution of uh, people who broke windows, who assaulted police officers, who clearly tried to overturn a legal proceeding by the Congress of the United States. And uh, you may say, as Scott, our emailers, suggested, that people were sincere in their beliefs. They felt that the election had been stolen. But there are ways, and certainly the Trump administration was very enthusiastic in pursuing those ways, to try to question the election results legally. He had, uh, remember, Rudy Giuliani, who seems to be hiding somewhere. I mean, have you heard much about Rudy Giuliani? I haven't. 
And uh, Rudy Giuliani, by the way, also you you may remember, <laughs> dressed in drag at one point. Uh, I believe it was on a um, uh, a, a banquet. Uh, he and but it's it's not it's not a sight that you want to repeat with Rudy Giuliani with a wig and skirt and uh, some padding up top. Uh, for, let's forget that. The uh, the question is that uh, Rudy Giuliani and uh, Sidney Powell, if you remember her, and a whole crowd of legal talent uh, was trying in some 60 legal actions to overturn results of the election, and they lost every single one of them. And that's how you do things in America. You don't attack the Congress of the United States, set up a gallows for Mike Pence. Maybe they really intended the gallows for him taking papers without authorization. In any event, the uh, three active duty Marines were arrested uh, for breaching the Capitol uh, on January 6th. And they are going to be facing uh, legal action against them. One is being accused of supporting a second civil war. Listen, this is from CNN. Three active duty U.S. Marines have been arrested for storming the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. And one is being accused of supporting a second civil war. Let's bring in now CNN's Jeremy Herb. So, Jeremy, uh, how did these Marines end up on the FBI radar? And the arrest this week of these three Marines, it's a good reminder that it's been two years since the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And federal investigators are still looking to track down everyone who went inside the Capitol and breached those walls that day. Now, these three Marines... Corporal Micah Coomer, Sergeants Joshua Abate, and Sergeant Dodge Dale Hellinen, they're facing a number of charges, including disorderly conduct in a Capitol building. And we learned from court filings just how these Marines were found, um, including one, Micah Coomer, who posted photos to his Instagram. Uh, he included with them the caption that he was, quote, glad to be a part of history. Uh, and uh, again, it is part of history, but the people who fought the United States in the Civil War, the Confederates who fought to defend slavery against any potential interference by the uh, new administration of Abraham Lincoln, those people are also part of history, but it's a shameful part of history. And we'll, we'll get to the idea of celebrating Robert E. Lee together on the same day with Martin Luther King, uh, that coming up. But uh, there's there's more on these prosecutions. Here is Richard Barnett uh, on describing his experience. He was found guilty yesterday. Uh, they gave the verdict, and it was a very quick verdict, and he's guilty on all the counts against him. And he, uh, he was pictured on Nancy Pelosi's office with his feet on the desk expressing disrespect for the Speaker of the House. He took an envelope from her desk, which <laughs> you're also not allowed to do if you've broken into the Speaker's office. Here is, uh, he gave his story about why he went into Pelosi's office, clip 16. How'd you get it? I didn't steal it. I bled on it because they were facing me and I couldn't... See, 
And so I figured, well, I'm in her office. I got blood in her office. I'll put a quarter on her desk, even though she ain't worth it. And I left her a note on her desk. It says, Nancy Big always hear you. Uh, okay, he, uh, Big O was there. His nickname is Big O. Uh, I'm not sure why, but Richard Big O Barnett, and he uh, had a, an attorney named Joseph McBride who says that uh, with his conviction yesterday on all eight counts, they didn't get a fair trial. Here's the argument about why not. Uh, this is clip 14. The jury did not even look at the evidence or consider our side of the story for a second. We feel we got robbed. We do, we do not feel that our case was judged on the merits. We do not feel that we were able to overcome the political implications and prejudice, prejudice attached to Richard Barnett's case. We asked for a change of venue. We filed very well thought out and very well pled pleadings in this case regarding the change of venue motions. Uh, we got shut down. Yeah. We never thought for, for, any, for any moment in time that we would get a fair trial in D.C. Nonetheless, we went in there in good faith. We thought that we picked a good jury. I'm very disappointed with, 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 with the verdict in this case. Okay, the question would be for the losing attorney, Joseph McBride, does he believe now that uh, his client behaved badly, that his client did things in breaking into the speaker's office that he shouldn't have done? And most of the people who have been convicted, most of the people who have pled guilty, certainly, are, um, are all very willing to admit their regret for having gone into the Capitol building and sacked the Capitol building. It's not like, uh, again, we talked about the Civil War before. Uh, there were even songs. There's one sort of notorious song uh, that says, I'm a good old rebel. Uh, where, where somebody is singing about how he was glad he fought against the Stars and Stripes and glad he fought for the South. and uh, People haven't taken that position, and to the best of my knowledge, Richard Big O. Barnett didn't take uh, uh, that, that kind of attitude. So the question becomes, if you recognize that what you did was wrong, uh, what what do you say should be the consequence about that? And uh, I mean, I, by the way, if if you're an attorney like Joseph McBride, I don't know who he is. Uh, how how do you justify representing uh, one one of these individuals and actually going to a jury trial and taking all of that time? And uh, I understand that in our system, everybody has to have a fair trial, and that means you need an attorney. But uh, if you are, if you are a, an attorney who has gotten some national attention by defending uh, Richard Bigo Barnett, doesn't that? Uh, one can only hope it is being done pro bono, that uh, you're not requiring Richard Barnett to pay you. And uh, again, the idea that this is going to be the kind of thing that helps your career as an attorney, the fact that you're, you're virtually 100% sure of losing the case. I mean, 
if they overcharged and they uh, accused someone of high treason, for instance, which they haven't, uh, but uh, in most of these cases in defending uh, people from January 6th, the uh, one lost record hasn't been terrific. Uh, speaking of one lost and the Civil War, there are two states, and I didn't know this, who still observe a strange hybrid holiday. The holiday is called King Lee Day, jointly celebrating Martin Luther King and Robert E. Lee. Where? We'll talk about it. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, there was a piece in the Washington Post uh, because uh, there's a an anomaly that I had been unaware of. I, I have never spent time in uh, either... Uh, Alabama or Mississippi in I've spent time there uh, otherwise but never in January and in January they in Alabama and Mississippi they still mark uh, the King Lee Day as a state holiday uh, the two states uh, Alabama and Mississippi uh, as the uh, United States celebrated Martin Luther King Day a couple of weeks ago, uh, Alabama and Mississippi observe a different holiday, which is called King Lee Day, which commemorates both Dr. Martin Luther King and Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Washington Post writes, the two men's birthdays fall just four days apart, but their legacies couldn't be more different. King gave his life to the cause of racial equality. <clears throat> Lee fought in the Civil War to keep black people enslaved. Now, uh, Lee himself would never have said that was his main purpose in fighting for the state of Virginia against the country that he had pledged to serve. He would say that he was fighting to defend Virginia and the sovereignty of Virginia and the Commonwealth of Virginia. But in effect, it's it's true. He was fighting uh, for a cause. The main premise of that cause, the main premise for Confederate independence, was to protect slavery. The vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Hamilton Stevens of Georgia, gave a speech as soon as the Confederacy was officially launched, where he said how noble and glorious it was that finally there was a... Uh, a new republic that had been established based upon the great truth that white and black people were not equal. In any event, Mississippi and Alabama will both marked uh, King Lee Day as a state holiday this year. Until recently, they had company. Arkansas celebrated King Lee Day until 2018. Isn't that astonishing? And uh, Virginia observed uh, Lee Jackson King Day, also throwing Confederate General Stonewall Jackson into the mix. They, they celebrated Lee Jackson King Day from 1984 until 2000. The, um, that's amazing. 
And they celebrated that the Friday before MLK Day. They did this until 2021. And uh, before that, they had just Jackson Lee Day as a separate holiday before they included Dr. King in 2000. And uh, Texas still celebrates Confederate Heroes Day on Lee's actual birthday, which is January 19th. And state employees can take a paid holiday on both days. Okay, a little bit of a prediction here. This is probably uh, going to change. And going to change fairly quickly because a part of... um, what has been uh, going on fairly dramatically has been a reconsideration of that whole myth of the lost cause, the idea that there was something noble about the Confederate cause. And honestly, the, the more that Americans look at that without nostalgia and without the perspective of gone with the wind, uh, the less that is credible. And speaking of a problem with credibility, there was a comment about end times by Lauren Boebert. And she may think that the fact that she won her recount and that uh, she's joined in the House of Representatives by George Santos, that all may be uh, signifiers of end times upon us. But... Here she believes that Satan himself is actually going to bring Jesus back. Why? Because American Christians are doing such a great job. Uh, This is uh, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert of Colorado speaking at a recent interview at a Turning Point USA event. Listen. It's an analogy, maybe maybe it's true, maybe it's not, uh, about the second coming of Jesus. Um, I've heard stories of, you know, people believing that Christians are going to be um, hiding out in caves and, you know, and just um, lockdown. Maybe maybe it's a lockdown, maybe it's a government lockdown, but they're shut in and they beg for Jesus to come back. He comes back and rescues them. I don't think that that's the way it's going to be. If, if the Old Testament is a type and a shadow of the New Testament and you look at the Exodus, from Egypt, Pharaoh, he was the one who called for God to get his people. He said, get your people out of here. And I believe if if that type and shadow is true for the New Testament, the church, God's people will be out in such a great force that Satan himself will call for the second coming of Jesus. He will say, I cannot do a thing in this earth with your people here. You come and get them. Come on. Isn't that great? That is amazing. Isn't that great? Uh, Okay. Uh, First of all, the idea that the Old Testament is a shadow of the uh, New Testament. I mean, which came first, right? I mean, let's think old versus new. Uh, and, And second, her... Her reading of the uh, incident of the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt, suggesting that it was uh, Pharaoh who called upon God because he wanted to get rid of the Jews, Uh, Pharaoh repeatedly, and in fact, there's a controversial passage in that 
portion of the Bible, which, by the way, by coincidence, just as she was talking about it, uh, Jews around the world are actually reading this story. Uh, the conclusion of this story, this coming Saturday and this last Saturday, we, we read about Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh and begging Pharaoh, not let my people go, because that phrase never appears in the Bible at all. Let my people go! Right, sorry, it appears in the movie, but not, <laughs> not in the Bible. Because what is said in the Bible is they say, send my people out uh, so they can worship me in the wilderness. Uh, they can serve me in the wilderness. And uh, in other words, uh, but that again, I guess Lauren Boebert was not actually elected in order to be a uh, biblical scholar. There's a piece in The Guardian, which is actually, I think, directly related to Lauren Boebert. Uh, and uh, the, the piece by uh, Adam Gabbat says, as the U.S. adjusts to an increasingly non-religious population, thousands of churches are closing each year. About a quarter of the young adults who dropped out of church said they disagreed with their church's stance on political and social issues. Churches are closing at rapid numbers in the U.S., researchers say, as the congregations dwindle across the country and the younger generations of Americans abandon Christianity altogether, even as faith continues to dominate American politics. I don't know that faith dominates American politics. It does play a role. About 4,500 Protestant churches closed in 2019. That's before the pandemic, and that's the last year data is available with uh, almost 3,000 new churches opening. Okay, if there are 3,000 new churches that open and 4,500 Protestant churches that close, that's a big reduction. That's a reduction of 1,500 total congregations. What happened to all those people? What happened to those places of worship? It was the first time the number of churches in the U.S. hadn't grown since uh, the firm Lifeway Research, which is an evangelical firm, started studying the topic. With the pandemic speeding up a broader trend of Americans turning away from Christianity, researchers say the closures will only have accelerated. In the last three years, all signs are pointing to a continued pace of closures probably similar to 2019 or possibly even higher as there's been a really rapid rise in American individuals who say they're not religious. There's a deeper question and it's very much worth considering because I think it's important for the future of the country. Why? Uh, we will get to that. We will also get to some of the latest polling and shaping up of political races, plural, coming up in 2024 and much more in this greatest nation on God's green earth.